fourth watch starts now. to the fourth watch with Justin Fall on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. I hope everyone's having a blessed week. Tonight we're going to explore a strange and paranormal topic that seems to be of relevance in our modern world. We'll be investigating a topic that entertains the minds of men who seek supernatural power outside of the living God Yahweh. We've got a lot to cover, so let's go ahead and start the adventure. Submitted for the approval of the Fourth Watch Radio Network. I call this episode, Strange Portals, Enter at Your Own Risk. We live in a time where the culture seems to flock to esoteric and supernatural knowledge. People seek higher states of consciousness, and they desire spiritual connections and communication. As people, we are hardwired for a higher spiritual consciousness, but only through Jesus Christ Yeshua. Unfortunately, that's not the popular source for this achievement in the world these days. We're seeing an influx in New Age literature and practices, the invoking of spirit guides and other demonic entities. This is more than a mere hobby for most people. Of course, there are those who are just dabbling in the occult, but this is rather a widespread explosion of satanic religious practice. The television is filled with shows promoting psychics and New Age spiritism, as well as teams of ghost hunters and thrill seekers chasing after demonic adrenaline rushes. As Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun, folks, and we will see that verse come into action later in the show. But I want to explore some of the areas that people believe to be portals or doorways to the spirit realm or dimensions. This may sound preposterous to some of you listening right now, but many practitioners of occult magic find themselves drawn to certain locations for specific rituals throughout the year. Many of these places have been recorded in history and even passed down as hidden knowledge among the members of their societies for generations upon generations. Now there's a fine line between science and religion. As we get started tonight, I found it extremely interesting that NASA published in 2012 that they have scientifically discovered the existence of portals. And this is on the NASA.gov website. And I want to share this with you. NASA writes, A favorite theme of science fiction is the portal, an extraordinary opening in space or time that connects travelers to distant realms. A good portal is a shortcut, a guide, a door into the unknown. If only they actually existed. Well, it turns out that they do, and a NASA-funded researcher at the University of Iowa has figured out how to find them. We call them X-points, or electron diffusion regions, explains physicist Jack Scudder of the University of Iowa. They're places where the magnetic field of Earth connects to a magnetic field of the sun, creating an uninterrupted path leading from our own planet to the sun's atmosphere 93 million miles away. Observations by NASA's Themis spacecraft and Europe's cluster probes suggest that these magnetic portals open and close dozens of times each day. They're typically located a few tens of thousands of kilometers from the Earth, where the geomagnetic field meets the onrushing solar wind. Most portals are small and short-lived. Others are yawning, vast, and sustained. NASA is planning a mission called MMS, short for Magnetospheric Multiscale Mission, 
due to launch in 2014, to study the phenomenon. The four spacecrafts of MMS will spread out in Earth's magnetosphere and surround the portals to observe how they work. Just one problem, they say, finding them. Magnetic portals are invisible, unstable, and elusive. They open and close without warning, and there are no signposts to guide us in, notes Scudder. Actually, now we found there are signposts, and Scudder has found them. Portals form via the process of magnetic reconnection. Mingling lines of magnetic force from the sun and earth crisscross and join to create the openings. X-points are where the crisscross takes place. In the late 1990s, NASA's polar spacecraft spent years in Earth's magnetosphere, explained Scudder, and it encountered many portals during its mission. Using polar data, we have found five simple combinations of magnetic field and energetic particle measurements that tell us when we've come across a portal. A single spacecraft properly instrumented can make these measurements. Wow. This means that single members of the MMS constellation using the diagnostics can find a portal and alert the other members of the constellation. It's a shortcut worthy of the best portals of fiction. Only this time, the portals are real. And with the new signposts, we know how to find them, NASA says. Since this official announcement, they have set the launch date now for March 2015. So, NASA has discovered and validated these portals that were once only known in science fiction books and movies, or even conspiracy theory websites. Now their mission is to search them out in space. But we're more concerned with the portals here on Earth for the time being. But it's fascinating to hear that the professional science community admits that portals are real. And they have proven it. And in fact, they're seeking them out. It seems to me that they aren't really seeing these portals for what they really are. Or perhaps they are, and they're just repackaging their story to the public. NASA has its roots in the occult Third Reich, which we've covered in the Hollow Earth Trilogy, and I highly recommend listening to those shows if you haven't already. But not only has NASA been steeped in occultism since its conception, but there are documented exposés of the correlations to all the major NASA missions and occult rituals, some even Masonic in nature. We don't have time to cover all of that tonight, but I wanted to serve up some food for thought while we're on the topic of NASA and their occult practices. Now, I quickly want to share a few thoughts. I'm not teaching doctrine here, but rather sharing some thoughts that came to mind. Could this possibly be the beginning of something that will be used to usher in the coming arrival of the extraterrestrials? This has been proclaimed by the Vatican and others for years. It seems that the only reason anyone would want to access these portals would be to monitor the presumed interdimensional doorways and possibly be so bold to enter these portals. It could be that they will explain to the world that these portals are the door of invitation to other entities and life forces into our realm. Of course, I'm just throwing out some ideas here, and in no way am I in any agreement with any of these practices. We know that the alien agenda is purely demonic, and I tend to think that this alien agenda will be a rather large player in the end times deception of the Antichrist. But one thing we do know is that portals are sought after for occult purposes, and more directly to bring ancient entities into our realm. We also know that since the beginning of time, portals are mentioned as being used all over our planet in religious rituals. Now moving into the discussion of portals that are here on earth, I want to break out some interesting coverage of one of the most popular known portals of demonic activity known to mankind. This is such an influential and historic location that it's not only a household name, but it's taught in public schools as a mystery. Of course we're discussing Stonehenge, and tonight we're going to dissolve some of the mystery and expose the reality. 
Stonehenge is a massive stone monument located on a chalky plain north of the modern-day city Salisbury, England. Research shows that this site has continuously evolved over a period of about 10,000 years. The structure that we call Stonehenge forms just one part of a larger and highly complex sacred landscape. The biggest of Stonehenge's stones, known as sarsens, are up to 30 feet tall and weigh 25 tons on average. It is widely believed that they were brought from Marlborough Downs, a distance of 20 miles to the north. Now, folks, Marlborough Downs had a lot of giant activity. We've, we've mentioned Marlborough Downs in past shows on the Nephilim. Now, there's smaller stones that are referred to as blue stones, weighing up to four tons, and come from several different sites in western Wales, having been transported as far as 140 miles. Interestingly, these blue stones are an extremely rare form of granite. The variables we see here make it so clear that normal humans couldn't have built this place of ritual sacrifice. This takes us back to the other giant monuments and structures around the world that would have had to have been supernaturally built somehow by the Nephilim and the fallen angels. I say supernaturally built because many of these structures line up perfectly with certain constellations and ley lines. The fact is, many occult practices entail astrology, and that's why certain locations are imperative to the conducting of rituals. This may be a clue in understanding the idea of the portals being in specific locations as well. Stonehenge is not only a temple complex, but it's also an astrological observatory. Eight times a year, the Druids would travel to Stonehenge on the major and minor Sabbaths to perform their rites of human sacrifice. Archaeologists have unearthed more than 4,000 human skeletal remains there. Now, stone circles are widely known sites for satanic human sacrifice. As popular Stonehenge is, it's a rather small stone circle compared to others. For example, the stone circle at Avebury in Wiltshire, England. When compared to the size of Stonehenge and the human remains found there, there would be far more human remains at Avebury. But Stonehenge is still a very active site for rituals to this very day. And people who visit as tourists say that there is a very powerful and vibrant, strange energy radiating all around the location. Because occultism is so widely practiced by the elite, we can also find two dozen replica monuments across the United States. One site is actually known as America's Stonehenge, and it's located in Salem, New Hampshire. Although it has become more of a tourist attraction over the years, it's America's only Stonehenge with an oracle chamber, a sacrificial stone, and other ominously named features. The structure is said to be from around 2400 BC. Claims that the site has a pre-Columbian origin are usually regarded as controversial. Among structures at the site are standing stones that have been erected to align directly with the astronomical events just like Stonehenge in England. The stones line up with the summer solstice, the winter solstice, and even the equinoxes when the Earth is on a level plane with the Earth's equator and the cross-quarter days which fall in between them. Now this is interesting. Artifacts found on the site lead archaeologists to the conclusion that the stones were actually assembled for a variety of reasons. For example, a Baal stone, B-A-A-L, just like the false god in the Bible, was found that has an inscription that says, to Baal, on behalf of the Canaanites, this stone is dedicated. A much-discussed altar known as the sacrificial stone contains grooves that some say channel blood during pagan rituals. The stone is 9 feet by 6 feet, and it sits on 4 legs and weighs about 4.5 tons. You can see where the blood would channel down and drip off the edge into a vase, and there's even a cutout for a vase to hold the blood. 
Another bizarre find is that at the summer solstice stone of the American Stonehenge, a line extends all the way to the Stonehenge in England. It even then extends further east to Beirut, Lebanon. So the question is, what is the connection here? What is a Stonehenge doing in New Hampshire that has archaeological astronomy crafted stones that line up with solstices, a stone that is dedicated to the Canaanite god Baal, a sacrificial stone, and an alignment that extends to the England Stonehenge, which continues east to Lebanon, where the Canaanites come from. These are definitely some interesting questions we need to ask. One interesting fact, the land of Canaan was situated at the crossroads of several cultures, and historically in the occult world, it is known that crossroads are portals where demons meet with people and bargain for their souls. So to say the least, it is quite strange to find a Stonehenge in New Hampshire that predates Christopher Columbus's arrival to the New World by thousands of years, and also that has an artifact stone dedicated to Baal, including a sacrificial stone. Did some of the Canaanite Nephilim find their way to America and set up a portal to Baal? This takes us right back to the show entitled Nephilim Chronicles Number 1. The fact that a straight line can be extended from Stonehenge America to Stonehenge England further east to Canaan is not just a mere coincidence. The idea of human sacrifice taking place in the stone circles is not only historic, but was documented by various figures in history. Julius Caesar even said about the native Celts that they believed that the gods delight in the slaughter of prisoners and criminals. And he even said that when the supply of captives runs short, they sacrifice even the innocent. Right out of the mouth of historical Julius Caesar. One of the interesting things I kept running across in researching this topic was the reoccurring theme of human sacrifice rituals at the areas of demonic portals. The next excavation takes us into Mexico to explore a Mayan portal said to lead into the underworld. A labyrinth filled with stone temples and pyramids and 14 caves, some underwater, have been uncovered on Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. The discovery has experts wondering whether Maya legend inspired the construction of the underground complex, or vice versa. According to Maya myth, the souls of the dead had to follow a dog on a horrific and watery path and endure myriad challenges before they could rest in the afterlife. In one of the recently found caves, researchers discovered a nearly 300-foot concrete road that ends at a column standing in front of a body of water. We have this pattern now of finding temples close to the water or even under the water, in this most recent case, said Guillermo Dionda, lead investigator at the research sites. These were probably made as part of a very elaborate ritual, Dionda told National Geographic. Everything is related to death, life, and human sacrifice, he said. Stretching south from southern Mexico, through Guatemala, and into northern Belize, the Maya culture had its heyday from about AD 250 to 900, when the civilization mysteriously collapsed, or just disappeared leaving only evidence of a powerful community with heavy involvement with fallen angels. Archaeologists excavating the temples and pyramids in the capital of Yucatan State said the oldest item they found was a 1900-year-old vessel. There are stones, huge columns, and sculptures of priests in the caves, said Dionda, whose team has been working on the Yucatan Peninsula for six months. There are also human remains and ceramics, he said. He went on to say that caves are natural portals to other realms, which could have inspired the Mayan myth. They are related to darkness, to fright, to monsters, Dionda said. 
William Saturno, a Maya expert at Boston University, believes the maze of temples was actually built after the story was written. But others disagree as the evidence shows the stories explain the full history. Saturno said the discovery of the temples underwater indicates the significant effort the Maya put into creating these portals. In addition to plunging deep into the forest to reach the cave openings, Maya builders would have had to hold their breath and dive underwater to build some of the shrines and pyramids. Other Maya underworld entrances have been discovered in jungles and above-ground caves in northern Guatemala, Belize. They believe in a reality with many layers, Saturno said of the Maya. The portal between life and where the dead go was very important to them. Now, one of the interesting things that stuck out to me in this case was the building of underwater temples. I've heard many stories of strange UFO-type crafts flying right into the water and disappearing. We also know that the Maya claimed to have contact with different gods and star people, which we know to be fallen angels and Nephilim. And it's not only the Maya that have recorded underwater cities and temples, but there are various cultures around the world that have similar type accounts. And interestingly, these structures are dated to have been built after the Great Flood of Noah's Day. Now moving on into the next area of portal research, I've found that many people claim that Asheville, North Carolina is considered to be the East Coast Mecca of Satanism and Paganism. It's been reported that there are countless areas amidst the mountains where satanic rituals are performed, and one source claims that many police are even involved in these human sacrifice cults. One high school student said that Satanism is practiced widely by the majority of his classmates. North Carolina has its share of mysterious locations and many stories of satanic ritual abuse. Seely's Castle, also known as the Overlook Mansion in Asheville, North Carolina, is steeped in rumors of dark and disturbing affairs and has long been reputed to be a location for the satanic rituals and sacrifices of the rich, elite, and powerful that populate Asheville and the surrounding region. The castle has a mysterious history and includes a strange hidden room. There are dark cross-shaped windows on the outside of the room, but many people claim to have not been able to find the entrance to the room. The castle changed owners about five times and eventually became the property of a Pentecostal ministry. While under the control of different owners, more than a handful of people were able to stay there and even explore different parts of the castle. One report included finding passage into the hidden room, and they described it as being covered in soot from fires of some sort. This could lead to some interesting theories for sure. While the property is fenced off and seemingly closed down these days, the stories and theories widely live on. We really don't know too much beyond the speculation as to the details of Seely's Castle, but I thought I'd mention it as it sits in the state of our next portal topic. An even more intriguing location in North Carolina is the historic circle known as the Devil's Tramping Ground. On Halloween this year, Chris Putnam, author of the book entitled Supernatural Worldview, took a trip to the Devil's Tramping Ground and posted a short video of his visit. Just seeing the two-minute video sparked my interest into this particular location and I wanted to look further into the well-known paranormal location that so many have written about. The fact that it's a large circle also sparked my interest. Now, as Chris arrived on the scene in the early morning, he quickly found bones and animal skulls scattered around, and even what appeared to be ashes, leaving us to believe that this is one of the many locations in North Carolina where sacrifice rituals take place. So let's take a look at the Devil's Tramping Ground. There's a place in western Chatham County, North Carolina, approximately 10 miles from Siler City, that has baffled folks for many years. In a wooded area, there is this well-worn path 
about 40 feet in diameter, shaping a perfect circle. In the center and outside the round is lush vegetation, grass and other plant life, perfectly healthy, but absolutely nothing grows or lives in the ring-shaped track. At dusk, when people have placed rocks or sometimes even very heavy objects in the pathway, those same objects have been found the next morning to either have been mysteriously brushed aside or unexplainably missing. Over the years, hunters who frequented the scene say that when their hunting dogs came upon the circle, the dogs tucked their tails between their legs and cowardly scurried off. Scientists and various researchers have carefully examined the place, but no one can offer any explanation as to why no plant life grows in the path, nor can they explain any of its other unknown and troublesome subtleties. The site was first discovered by settlers who came to Chatham County before the 1800s. They gave the place its name, a name which remains to this day, the Devil's Tramping Ground. In his book, North Carolina Legends, Richard Walser shares the reason behind the name and offers the only explanation for the phenomena that has lasted throughout the centuries. He said, though no one ever saw him there, it was believed to be the haunt of the foul fiend who came at night to tramp around and around in a circle. His head was lowered, his expression intense. It was during these hours that Satan planned his evil schemes to undo mankind. At first light of the morning, he was gone, winging his way like a bat across the world to carry out his nefarious purposes. Yet so scorching had been his footprints on the ground of his circular pathway that the soil became infertile and the nocturnal retreat of the hellish prince of darkness was shunned and avoided. While that's the legend that surrounds the location, we know that the seat of Satan is located in Pergamum, which is modern-day Turkey. We'll cover the seat of Satan in another show, but based on this particular title that the Bible gives as the seat of Satan being in Turkey, I don't think that we're dealing with any truth in the myth about the devil's tramping ground. However, we cannot deny the accounts of paranormal activity that have taken place here and continue to take place here. Some researchers try to rationalize that nothing grows in the circle because it might be an ancient salt flat where deer have been licking for years. Unfortunately, that idea is discounted when we see the shape as a perfect circle. And the fact that people tell of shadow creatures appearing at the site isn't a long shot from many other demonic accounts circulating the globe. It's apparent that something is going on here and historically predated the first settlers to the region. The easiest claim they could make was to associate the area with the devil. But regardless of what entity or entities possess this portal or location, we can be sure that it's demonic in nature. But I want to move us into a really interesting area now, taking us into Washington. One of my listeners, Kay Carswell, brought this account to me, and it's extremely interesting. In 1997, Art Bell of Coast to Coast AM, the popular syndicated radio show, received a fax from a man named Mel Waters. The fax explained that Mel had what appeared to be a bottomless pit on his property near Manistash, Washington. Soon thereafter, Art booked Mel on his radio show. Mel had bought his property a few years earlier, and the previous owners had owned the land for over 30 years prior to that. The neighbors knew of the hole quite well and would regularly dump their garbage in it. But the hole would never fill. It was a round pit with a stone retaining wall surrounding it and extending down about 15 feet below the ground surface. Beyond the wall, the hole bore through dirt and bedrock. And from there, darkness as far as the eye could see. Mel had never met anyone who could remember when the hole was not there. There seemed to be nothing other than a reason to indicate that the pit had a bottom either. No matter what you dropped into the hole, you would never hear it hit the bottom. 
Not a splash, not a crash, nothing. No noise from the top seemed to echo back. There were other oddities as well. Animals feared the hole. Mel's dogs would follow him everywhere he went. They were loyal and trustworthy, but they would never approach the hole. They would dig their paws into the ground and resist. And it wasn't just Mel's dogs either. Nobody's pets would allow themselves near the hole. Mel recalled a story told to him by a neighbor. It seems one of his hunter's dogs had died, and he decided to dispose of the animal into the pit. The hunter swore that he saw the same dog with the same collar sometime later, running through the woods. Eventually, Mel's curiosity got the best of him, and he decided to do some experiments. As a former shark fisherman, he knew that he could determine whether or not there was water in the pit, provided he had enough fishing line to extend to the water. He simply strung the end of his fishing line through a roll of Lifesaver's candy, and he lowered the line down. Mel let the candy hang at 1,500 feet for long enough to let the candy dissolve if there was water in the pit. He then lifted back the line to the top, and the candy remained, so there was no water at 1,500 feet. Now, Mel's next experiment was to lower a one-pound lead weight down the pit, and when he reached the end of his spool, he simply tied on a new spool of line, and he lowered that as well. Spool after spool after spool, Mel lowered into the mysterious cavity of the earth until he had used 80,000 feet of fishing line. Folks, that's over 15 miles of fishing line. Now, here are some interesting things that happened following the show. The day after the broadcast, Mel returned to his property, and he was blocked by uniformed people, claiming that there was a plane crash, and Mel could not enter his own property for the time being. Mel didn't believe them as he saw no smoke or other evidence of a plane crash. He was then warned that a drug lab could easily be quote-unquote found on his property if he didn't turn around and cooperate. Mel threatened to go to the press, and then they offered to lease his property from him for $250,000 per month. So he accepted. Mel relocated to Australia with the help of whoever they were who wanted his land. They let him bring his dogs and some of his plants with him, completely sidestepping international regulations. Mel was involved in medicinal plant research, and he wanted to continue in that while he was in Australia. They paid him just as promised, regularly and on time every month between March of 1997 to December of 1999. Now, Mel worked on wombat rescue and research. This is something he had always wanted to do. And so he was able to do this, and he spent most of his money just on that. Mel returned to the U.S. in December of 1999 to visit his family and to reappear on Coast to Coast AM. The government then served him legal papers implicating him as being in violation of building codes on his property, and his land was officially seized. After helping his nephew move, Mel got on a bus in Tacoma, Washington, headed for Olympia. There was an altercation on the bus, and the police asked Mel to give a statement. Mel refused and said that he had to get back to Olympia to which the police said they could give him a ride in the van. That was the last thing Mel remembers of that trip. Twelve days later, he woke up in an alley in San Francisco. He had been badly beaten, and interestingly, his molar teeth had been removed. There was evidence that Mel had been hooked up to an IV. The money was now missing out of Mel's account. His wombat research facility was completely dismantled, and all of his employees were laid off. It was then that his nephew bought him a bus ticket to get back to Washington, and he reappeared on Coast to Coast to tell everyone what had happened. Now, many people have been very suspicious about this male character, and some have even written him off as a publicity ploy, because some people say there is no proof of his name registered in that area. Now, I hate to cross into the conspiracy realm, but I'm going to just for a second. If this scenario is real, 
it wouldn't be hard to remove someone's name from a public registry during a government cover-up. But according to the story, it became a black operation, and that wouldn't allow for anyone to make their way to the location of Mel's property to examine his claims. The reason it made it into tonight's topic is because it's one of those locations that's surrounded by strange phenomena. Mel was known for growing medicinal herbs. It was reported that the herbs he grew on the land near the hole contained unimaginable healing qualities beyond those of herbs grown in other areas. There's a lot of speculation on both sides of the story, but we know that the hole is said to be in an area that has rich native Indian history. And many of the Indian tribes have passed down written and oral tradition about the so-called gods, which we know to be the fallen angels, coming up from the earth and impregnating women, birthing the Nephilim, and then they would re-enter into the earth back to their domains to rule from behind the scenes. And it was through rituals that they could be contacted and they would resurface. So that's why this story doesn't surprise me in the least. But for any of you skeptics listening right now, and I'm sure there's a few of you, I want to remind you of the verse in Job chapter 2 verse 2. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. So what are we dealing with here? Satan comes before the Lord, he presents himself before God, and God asks him straight up, where have you come from? And Satan responds by telling him, I've been in the earth, I've been walking around down in the earth, back and forth, up and down in it. That's one of those verses, folks, that lines up directly with so many paranormal and demonic accounts of various religions who have recorded that the gods dwell inside the earth. Not to go on a tangent, though. Again, be sure to check out the trilogy series I did on the hollow earth. But getting back on track, it seems fitting that the federal government would be on the scene at the drop of a dime to confiscate any type of portal here on earth or any type of supernatural geological anomaly. Now, it gets pretty interesting here, and this is kind of a telltale sign that authenticates what's going on. On a later show that Mel did on Coast to Coast, Mel had brought up something called the Terra Server. The Terra server was a database of public domain, aerial imagery, and satellite photos. It was made available online in December of 1997, eight months after Mel Waters first appeared on the radio. Now, at this point in the year 2002, this was before Google Earth, but Mel Waters told Art Bell's audience live on the air that according to his nephew, Mel's former property had completely been blotted out or deleted from the public domain imagery on the Terra server. That's like going to Google Earth and finding your house completely blotted out. Now, by the end of the following commercial break, Art's listeners had found the satellite picture with a white square blotting out Mel's property, which suddenly made his crazy story seem like it might not be so imaginary after all. Then on another show, Art testified that after an earlier interview, a TV camera crew went up to the Ellensburg area and they saw a lot of evidence that the military had indeed been there on Mel's property and the surrounding area. Now, Mel relates another piece of the puzzle. According to Mel, he had talked to a lot of people at a truck stop near that property, and people told him that they had seen a black beam of what could only be described as anti-light shooting up into the sky periodically from the area where the hole was located. Another trucker friend of his recalled delivering a huge quantity of fiber optic equipment to a warehouse in Ellensburg, to a group of Israelis, 
And another trucker claims to have delivered large crated instruments from Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in San Francisco to the same warehouse. Now, Lawrence Livermore Lab works on projects for the U.S. military. And let's not forget that San Francisco is where Mel turned up after he was abducted. Mel was unsure whether or not that was related or not. But in case it is, I just wanted to mention it. But unfortunately, with certain topics, we can only go so far in our understanding. But we can clearly see that there is something peculiar about Mel's hole. There are so many wild accounts of portals in strange areas just in the United States alone, many of which have historical roots and legends surrounding them. It's no surprise that there's almost always some form of religious connection with each one of them. Now, as we move into the last part of our discussion on portals, I want to talk about groves. A grove is a thicket or a group of trees, usually secluded, where a formal group of druids, witches, or various groups of occultists meet for ritual practice. And they're believed by many to be areas where demonic portals are opened during rituals. This is a deep topic throughout history, and it's a staple in many practices. I remember as a high school student, the Blair Witch movie was released. It was one of those movies that although it was totally fictional, it had some pretty realistic elements about it. I remember one scene showed the characters filming as they walked through the woods, and there was a dormant grove of trees that had satanic symbols made of sticks hanging from them, literally all over the place. At the time, I didn't realize this was a representation of a grove. Since the beginning of occult mystery religions, groves have been widely known as places of spiritual activity. This seems to have correlations with certain trees being holy or sacred. Now, many know that various sects of witchcraft hold trees to high spiritual regard. As a matter of fact, a missionary friend of mine just got back from Central Africa, and he told a pretty interesting story. Apparently, there was tension there between some witch doctors and one of the pastors he was working with. The witch doctors had an altar next to one of the trees of worship. You see, folks, groves are important features of the landscape and occult practices of many religions and witchcraft covens worldwide. They are largely, but not exclusively, associated with Druidic practice. During the Northern Crusades, there was common practices of building churches on the sites of sacred pagan groves. Now, that's another topic for another night. But the earliest known records of the Druids comes from the 3rd century BC and describes Druid groves, where they would meet to perform rituals and sacrifice. Formal organizations were also known as Bangors. Both of these were groups of Druid priests who became teachers, leaders, and even judges in their local communities. So even historically, the men who would meet and practice rituals in their groves would attain the social leadership positions in their communities. This is interesting, and it's relevant even today, with the now well-known Bohemian Grove in the Redwoods of California. I know that many of you listening right now are familiar with the Bohemian Grove, but I'd like to brush over a few details for those who may not be privy to this information. It still surprises me to this day that so many people aren't aware of some of the information that I believe to be well known. So for those of you who don't know, Bohemian Grove is a famous grove for the elite to retreat to every summer and perform satanic rituals, as well as homosexual rituals and practices. They perform a huge published ritual known as the cremation of care, where they burn a mock human effigy sacrifice unto a giant 40-foot owl god. Many claim this to be the Canaanite deity known biblically as Moloch. Now, Doc Marquis stated to me that this was a misconception, but that he believed the owl to be a direct representation of Lucifer. 
And historically, there is a link between Lucifer and the image of an owl. But then again, of course, Moloch is directly linked to Lucifer as well. So this isn't really an area of debate. Fact is, whatever this deity, this owl that they've erected in Bohemian Grove, whatever it is, it's directly linked to Lucifer worship. No question about it. So the interesting thing here is that many of these politicians, when questioned about the sacrifice, the cremation of care, they're questioned about it. And they say, oh, no, we're just we're just running through a dramatic interpretation of a stage play, basically. And they say that the sacrifice is just a mock human sacrifice. It's an effigy. Basically, they claim that it's animal flesh and animal organs sewn together to look like a human. That's their story. Now, even if that was the case, that's still very disturbing and very disgusting. And the fact that they would even admit to performing this type of a ritual blows my mind. But there are many researchers who speculate that it isn't in fact animal flesh and organs, but it's actually humans that they sacrifice every year. And we're talking about the most elite of the elite of the world. They want to get a person to sacrifice? It's not that hard, let me tell you. I mean, we're living in a time where people get abducted and disappear constantly. Now, this giant owl deity is surrounded by druidic priests and other characters wearing ritual robes, totally authentic. During the ceremony, chosen victims are sacrificed. There are even pictures from old Bohemian Club publications that show elite men standing around a young black boy, strapped down to a stretcher, the way that hunters pose with their game after a successful hunt. Really creepy. Members include just about every U.S. president, various congressmen, Hollywood stars, and elite rulers of the world. Pictures of the Bush family at the Grove are among the many that have been published by the Bohemian Club. Even former German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt says that out of all the groves of the world, this is his favorite one to visit. And that's a pretty bold claim. When you're an elite witch, and you can practice rituals in any of the groves worldwide, and you prefer Bohemian Grove over the rest, that says something about what's really going on there. There are countless insider reports of homosexual prostitutes and male porn stars being hired at high rates to service the men of power at this retreat. Sounds like our tax dollars are going to good use here. So the idea of this ritual, the cremation of care, is to submit to Lucifer all the cares of this world and offer him a sacrifice that will bring blessings and prosperity for the year to come. This ties us right back into the Druid practices we covered earlier in the show. Almost every major pagan culture has followed this routine by the shedding of blood under the gods. There's no telling what kind of portals are being opened every year at this mass event. But we know from previous shows that California is one of the historical American epicenters of cults and satanic cabals. Now, interestingly, the Bible actually mentions groves and it rebukes them. Exodus 34:13, but ye shall destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves. Deuteronomy 12:3, and ye shall overthrow their altars and break their pillars and burn their groves with fire, and ye shall hew down the graven images of their gods and destroy the names of them out of that place. Just in those two passages, we clearly see that the Lord doesn't approve of these satanic groves. And we're not saying that all forests are evil or trees, not at all. But there are certain areas that are set apart as groves, as spiritual portals, used as ritual sites. And that's what we see our leaders and celebrities taking part in every year at Bohemian Grove. I wanted to lead us out talking about groves tonight, because the story we're going to cover in the Bible mentions groves. 
As I was researching and putting together the notes for tonight, I was reminded of the groves used for Baal worship, and this shows up in a particular story in 1 Kings. It's actually one of my favorite Bible stories, and it really gives us a clear vision of God's divine power, as well as his hatred for evil. Tonight we're going to talk about the faith of a warrior. This will challenge each and every one of you to examine your faith and give solid evidence of Yahweh, the God in whom we place our faith. We're going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 18. I really love this chapter. There was a great wickedness in the land, and three years of drought didn't seem to soften the hearts of King Ahab or the Israelites. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we read about a dramatic event. Of special importance in this story, which we should note, is the idea that Baal was supposed to be the god of fertility, meaning he was the god that made crops grow by giving rain, sun, good soil, and so on. Baal should have been able to send the people rain, but he couldn't because he is a false god and has no power when in a standoff battle with Yahweh, the Most High God. So there was no rain for three years, just as Elijah said, and this was a judgment of Yahweh onto the people for worshiping false gods. The incident in this chapter when Elijah and the priests of Baal met on Mount Carmel is really a way to show that the Lord, not Baal, but the Lord alone has power over the elements. So let's pick up in verse 19. Elijah said to King Ahab, Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal four hundred and fifty, and the prophets of the groves four hundred, which eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel, and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people, and he said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, Not a word. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are four hundred and fifty men. Let them therefore give us two bulls, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under it. And I will dress the other bull, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under it. And call ye on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose for you one bull for yourselves, and dress it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under it. And they took the bull which was given them, and they dressed it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which they had made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is talking, or he is pursuing, or he is in a journey, or perhaps he sleepeth and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets, till the blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass when midday was past, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that there was neither voice nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. Now let me break this down a bit. Elijah told the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the groves to bring forth a bull and cut it up and prepare it and lay it on the altar of Baal. They did this as a prepared sacrifice. This was common knowledge. They would prepare an animal for the sacrifice. So Elijah called them to do that. And Elijah was going to cut up a bull and lay it on the altar of Yahweh God as his sacrifice. 
and they were basically at a showdown of the gods. The goal was to see which god had the power to answer their requests by consuming the bull on the altar with fire. The prophets of the groves were running around crying out to Baal, and nothing was happening. Now we're talking about a giant crowd of false prophets here, acting like foolish, demonized pagans, bobbing and weaving around and cutting themselves unto Baal, seeking their god to consume their bull on the altar with supernatural fire. And nothing happened. So Elijah started provoking them and making fun of them. He was mocking them. Where's Baal? Where's Baal? Where's your God? Why isn't he showing up? He can't hear you maybe. Maybe he's using the bathroom. <laughs> then we go to verse 30. And Elijah said unto the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Now quickly, this is a telltale sign of the wickedness that was prevalent in the land. Elijah had to rebuild and repair the altar of Yahweh because it had been broken down. That really shows us the state of spiritual sickness and apostasy that the people were in. The altar of God had been broken down, but they had altars of Baal all over the place. Now, verse 31, And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two measures of seed. This is just describing how big he dug the trench. And he put the wood in order, and he cut the bull in pieces, and he laid him on the wood. And he said, Fill four barrels with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and the wood. And he said, Do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, Do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran about the altar, and he filled the trench also with water. So we're now seeing Elijah calling for 12 barrels of water to be poured all over his bull and altar so much that it was running up and filling the trench that he had dug around his sacrifice. Talk about raising the stakes, ladies and gentlemen. With his entire altar and sacrifice being practically submerged in water, it was pretty much impossible for anyone to set his bull on fire, even with a flamethrower. I'm sure some of you can remember trying to build a campfire with wet wood. It's impossible to get a good fire started in those conditions. But you see, Elijah had faith in God, and he was doing the Lord's work. And he was setting up an impossible situation in the eyes of man. Verse 36, And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near, and he said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood, and the stones, and the dust. Now watch this. It even licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they cried out, The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and he slew them there. Wow. So God 
rain down fire from heaven and not only consume the entire bull soaking wet, but consumed the wood, consumed the stones, consumed the dust, and even burned up every last drop of the water that was in the trench. How awesome is that? I'll tell you how awesome. It was so awesome that all the prophets of the groves and Baal all fell down on their faces and declared that Yahweh is God. It was that awesome. But unfortunately for them, they were already in hell's kitchen and they had to be slaughtered. They had been mocking God all those years, worshiping Baal and performing satanic sacrifices in the groves. I would even be willing to bet that a number of them, if not all of them, were demon possessed. I mean, they began running around and slicing their own bodies with knives as they pleaded with Baal to intervene on their behalf. If that's not purely demonic, I don't know what is, ladies and gentlemen. But the moral of this historical account is one that really encourages my heart. We see the almighty, all-powerful God proving his power in a way that was clearly out of this world and in a seemingly impossible situation at that. Most people would have put their bets against Elijah because of the circumstances. No one would have had the faith to believe that heavenly fire or fire of any kind would consume that drenched altar. But Elijah had that kind of faith, friends, because he knew God's power and he was devoted to God's word. Elijah knew that the Lord was going to show up and that he was going to provide. So let's just stop for a second here and let me ask you guys, reflect on your own lives just for a second. Do you have this kind of faith? Do you have the kind of faith that will sustain the seemingly impossible situations that this life may bring? How many times have you been in an impossible situation? You just knew that it wasn't going to work out in your favor, or you just decided to let the chips fall where they may. How many times have you felt defeated and hopeless? I know that I've been there so many times, many of which were my own fault. But even when I found myself in some of the worst and most trying situations of my life, I submitted myself to prayer and I petitioned the Lord in faith, knowing that he would show himself and provide. Whether it be a health situation or financial or even something involving the law, maybe it's something involving a friend or a family member. Regardless of what it is that you're going through, friends, I want you to remember the testimony of God's power that showed up on the scene of Mount Carmel that day. Remember that the impossible became possible with God. It came through faith and prayer and was not in vain. We just witnessed one of the most amazing events in history tonight as we went through this biblical account. And the same God that showed up and provided on Mount Carmel is the same God that we serve through Jesus Christ Yeshua. And that same power he displayed back then, he still has today, folks. Nothing in this life is out of God's control. And he never changes. He is the same for eternity. We may not understand why we have to go through these trying situations and these seasons of depression or despair, but I can promise you, God is the only answer. Sometimes we have to go through these seasons before God delivers us into a season of blessings, but we must never lose hope. The enemy wants to destroy our hope, friends. 
He wants our faith to fade away in these trials, and He seeks to remove even the hope of our salvation. But I'm here to tell you that we must finish the race for Jesus Christ. Paul mentions finishing our course that's set before us. It's actually an athletic term related to finishing a race or an obstacle course. As a runner, I can relate to that. It's not easy to finish a course. I struggle sometimes with thoughts of slowing down and walking. But if we persist and we persevere, the Lord will give us a second wind in our life's course. So when we're going through difficult times in our lives, we can also remember Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. I don't know about you all, but I for one love God, and I am called according to His purpose. So let your hearts be encouraged tonight, knowing that the power of God is sufficient to even perform the impossible tasks. Therefore, there is nothing impossible for God. He whooped Baal and his false prophets, and he consumed the drenched altar and sacrifice that Elijah had set before him. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the God who we serve, the God who sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ Yeshua, to die on the cross, to pay for our sins, and to defeat death, conquering the grave. Have a living faith in him and hold on to his promises, never forgetting his supernatural power and never lose sight of the hope of your salvation. I pray that you hold on to the mighty works of God. Store them in your hearts, meditate on them, and remind yourselves of them daily as a testimony of His power and grace. If you're listening right now and you haven't accepted the Lord Jesus Christ Yeshua as your personal Lord and Savior, and you haven't accepted His holy sacrifice on the cross to pay for your sins, it's absolutely impossible for you to have a solid understanding of His Word. It's impossible to find protection from the demonic realm and the days that are fast approaching, friends. And furthermore, it's impossible to have peace with Yahweh Elohim, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ Yeshua. But here's the good news. You can start anew right now. You can repent of your sins and have the wages of your sins paid in full. Now is the time to repent and turn away from your sins and make right with the will of God. You see, the Bible declares that we don't know what tomorrow holds, so we must take action with the time that we have right now. Repentance is the first step. This means turning 180 degrees from your past thoughts, actions, and lifestyles that are in opposition to the Most High God. Because of Jesus Christ Yeshua and His once and for all sacrifice, you can be forgiven of your iniquity and every sin you've ever committed. Yahweh is a jealous God, but He's also rich in mercy. And tonight, if you're willing to admit your wrongs and repent, He's willing to show you that mercy right now, friends. The wages of our sin is death, but tonight we can receive the gift of God, which is eternal life. But as it says in Romans 6.23, only through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's no other way to come to God, folks. There's no other way to get salvation. You can't earn your salvation by good works. Fact is, Jesus Christ is the only way. Every other way, folks, leads to hell. There's no authentic way to the Father but Jesus Christ Yeshua. I'm so thankful that God sent His only begotten Son to die on the cross, a living sacrifice, and shed His sinless and perfect blood to pay the debt of our sins and the ability to be seen as blameless before God on that day of judgment. 
Let today be the beginning of your communion and peace with God as you're filled with the Holy Spirit and begin putting on the armor of God and growing into an intimate relationship with Him. It's the will of God that you don't perish, but rather that you repent and enter into a relationship with Him based on His terms. If you're not sure of what God's terms are, I want to challenge you to start reading your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, get one and learn firsthand what God expects from you. Christ is our only hope, friends, and my prayer is that you believe on Him tonight. That's the most important part of the show and by far the most important decision you will ever have to make in this life. Amen. It's been an interesting adventure tonight, and I hope you've all enjoyed this broadcast. If you ever miss a show or would like to go back and re-listen to an old one, every show is archived in high-quality streams on my website, fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. That's the number 4-T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O.B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T.com. Fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. There you'll find every broadcast dated and summarized for your convenience. Be sure to scroll all the way down on each page and click on the words Older Posts to be taken to more pages of archived shows. You can also find my shows broadcasted by the Fourth Watch Radio Network on Shoutcast, Spreaker, iTunes, or if you have an iPhone, iPad, or Android, you can download the Fourth Watch Radio Network app and enjoy easy streaming. For higher quality broadcasts, stay tuned in via fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com for all the latest shows. Like us on Facebook and feel free to add my personal page as well. If the Fourth Watch is ministered to you and you would like to help support this ministry, you can follow the link on our website. I bid you all a week filled with grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see you all next week. God bless and good night. You're listening to The Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on the Fourth Watch Radio Network.